my name is Michael. I am the pastoral resident or curate here at, at Servants. And it was last year on Valentine's Day weekend was the first time that I preached with y'all. And I joked with Alex that I would uh, talk about how Jesus is our true Valentine. And here he has me preaching on Valentine's Day weekend again, I think just daring me to see if I'll go through with that. But unfortunately, or fortunately perhaps, I will be preaching on something else. We'll be looking at uh, the gospel passage that I just read from. Now, I, I don't know if this is still the case, but when I was in college, if you used, so that's like 10 years ago now, which is weird for me, but if, when I was in college, if you used Google Maps, as you pulled up to your destination, it said, you have arrived. And my friends and I, we would joke, we were like, man, I would think that if I have arrived in life, I would probably be someplace other than Whataburger at midnight on a Tuesday. Like, probably would like, I don't know, have a job or be more established in life, because we thought that there was this sense of having made it in life, and it wasn't what we had then. It, the joke it rests on this shared understanding that we have about what a good life is. What is human flourishing? What is the life that is worth living? What is real happiness? And if we think about those questions, it's probably hard for us to articulate our answers because those dwell not in our cognitive minds, but more in the core of our being, in our imaginations. Uh, the, the philosopher James K.A. Smith talks about this idea that we all have of the good life like this. He says that the good life is a vision that captures our hearts and our imaginations, not by providing a set of rules or ideas, but by painting a picture of what it looks like for us to flourish and live well. So the answers that we have to those questions, they are not the things of classroom lectures, but are cultural legends. They're not the things that we read about in monographs, but that we watch in movies. They're the things that move our imaginations. And even if we can't articulate it, it animates us. He goes on to say that when talking about this idea of the good life, that every one of us is on a kind of Arthurian quest for the holy grail, that hoped for, longed for, dreamed of picture of the good life that we pursue without ceasing. And so that's why when we read what Jesus has to say here in the Beatitudes, for most of us it's kind of a record scratch moment. It's not what we would expect, it's the opposite of what we would expect. And I think in our passage this morning from the gospel, Jesus is trying to challenge our picture that we have of what the good life is. He's trying to challenge our notion of what it means to arrive. And so instead of looking at each blessing or woe individually, I want to invite us to look at them as a whole. Uh, what, is, what does Jesus mean when he says blessing and woe? Who is he talking to? And how can this possibly be, be true? So let's take a look at the picture of the good life that Jesus is painting and let it color our own imaginations. 
So first, if we're going to have to understand Jesus' articulation of the good life here, we're going to have to understand what he means by what is a blessing and what is a woe. So most of us, when we hear the word blessing, we think like divine favor. Like you're blessed if God particularly likes you or if you're blessing something or asking God's power to come in some gracious way upon that person. And that is definitely a way that the word bless can be used. But there are two words for bless or blessed in the New Testament. And this is actually a different one. This word is not a spiritual word at all that was used in Greek literature as well to describe who's happy, who has it good in life. And so when Jesus is talking about who is blessed here, perhaps it would be better for us to read it as saying him saying, here is who is happy. These are the kinds of people that have a happy life. And similarly with woe, uh, we might use the phrase like, woe is me, which is to say like, oh, I'm in a troublesome spot. Woe conveys the sense of trouble, of pain, of grief, of distress. And so when we hear Jesus say, woe on these people, perhaps it would be better for us to understand him saying, watch out, trouble is ahead. There's trouble on the way for these people that I'm talking about. And I think that if we read this passage this way, I think it hits a little bit differently. Let's try that right now. So let's, uh, Jesus lifts up his eyes upon us, the disciples, and he says, happy are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Happy are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Happy are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And then likewise, but troubles ahead for you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Trouble is ahead for you who are full now for you shall be hungry. Trouble is ahead for you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Trouble is ahead when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the prophets. When we read these words of Jesus with the idea of happy and trouble, how does it hit you in a different way? What feels different about that? One of the things that becomes apparent for me is that when Jesus is talking about these states, he's not trying to prescribe a response from us as much as he is trying to describe reality. He's not trying to give us a checklist of do these things and then you'll have the good life. He's saying this is the picture of what the good life is like. I know when I was a kid, I used to think, oh, when I read the Beatitudes, those are the things that I have to do. But I think that instead, Jesus is providing us with a picture. And as we think about it that way, perhaps it makes it even more striking when we think about who he's talking about that is actually happy or is actually in trouble. Uh, as we do that, we'll continue to let him challenge our understanding of what 
the good life is. And it's surprising. If, if, if you were to line up in two columns, one on the left, all of the blessed or happy states, uh, that of being on the, on the left will be poor, hungry, weeping, hated. On the right is rich, satisfied, uh, laughing, and liked. Which one would you choose? Which one would anyone choose? I would definitely want to be on this side. Sorry, it's, it's a reverse for me. I, I would want to be on this side. That's what almost anyone w- would say. It's surprising when Jesus says that the people on this side are the happy ones. And that is certainly surprising, but I want to make sure it surprises us for the right reasons. So just a couple quick points here on some of these words that could confuse us. Because I don't know about you, but when I see Jesus says, uh, woe to those who laugh, it can feel like Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor. Um, And I don't think that's the case. There are scholarly articles that are written actually about the sense of humor of Jesus. But if you don't trust academics about what's funny, I wouldn't blame you. Um, But here's one thing. Jesus, uh, two of his friends, he gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder. I don't think someone does that who doesn't have a sense of humor. Um, So I I don't think Jesus is saying just laughing in general is bad. A couple weeks ago, Alex encouraged us to read a psalm each day. And I I hope you do. I think it's a very valuable practice to pray alongside people who are more mature than I am. And as we do that, we'll start to see that in the Psalms, sometimes we see this idea of laughter come up. And when it comes up, it's not laughing with friends or at a good joke. It's the, the, the laughter of having conquered someone else. It's laughing at someone. It's ha ha, I've won and you've lost. And it's mostly in the context of when the psalmist is in agony and others are mocking him. Or when at the great judgment, right, wrong, right will, fi- wrong will finally be made right. And it's laughter at uh, things being set right. And so when Jesus is talking about laughter here, I don't think he's talking about us laughing with friends as much as he's talking about the, the laughter of, uh, uh, <laughs> as much as he's talking about laughing in victory or gloating over one's enemies. It's a laughter of triumph, not a laughter of humor. So one, we have to make sure what laughter means. And two, just a quick note on hatred. I think we all know what hatred is, but I think it's important that we be hated for the right reasons. Jesus says that uh, blessed or happy are you if you're hated for my name's sake. And I think it's important that uh, if we're hated, that it's for the right reasons. Too many Christians are hated because they're a jerk, not hated because they're like Jesus. And so we want to make sure if we're hated, it's not because we are like a jerk, but because we're like Jesus. Because if we stand up for the values of Jesus and people hate us, but we're standing up for the values of Jesus using the ways of the world in terms of aggression or fear or villainizing other people, perhaps the reason why people can't stand us 
is because we're not standing up for Jesus as Jesus actually made stands himself. So one, I just want, I just want to make sure that we know what Jesus is talking about when we're hated. And so if, if that's the case, okay, we have that in mind, that still doesn't change the fact that these two columns don't seem like the ones that I would label as who's happy and who is, is troubled. It's not the picture that I certainly would imagine. And so it begs the question for us, how does Jesus' picture compare to the, the picture that we would paint ourselves? And as, as Jamie Smith said, the picture that we have is often not something that we can articulate. It's not something that we could often just answer in response to a question like that. As Jeremiah said, our heart is deceitful. We might say one thing, but in our hearts want something else. And so a way I think we can start to get our finger on this is to think about what in our life evokes a tinge of longing or perhaps envy when we see it in other people. That, man, I wish I had that. If I had that, then my life would be good. And it's not bad to want good things, but often we want good things for the wrong reasons. I think a beautiful example of that is Psalm 73. It's one of my favorite psalms. Um, And it starts out with a, a psalmist, and he's confessing his heart. He's pouring his heart out to God. And he starts out by saying, I was envious of the arrogant, not something most of us would say, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, I saw the wicked, I saw the people in this column and how good their life was, and I wanted that. And he goes on to list the things that he sees that thought, man, I think that's the good life. And he goes on and becomes even more honest and says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying, God, following you hasn't been worth it because I haven't been getting the stuff. It's a candid confession that I was following you, God, but I was following you, God, because I wanted your goods. I wanted God as a means to a, a good life. What I really wanted was not God, but what I really wanted was the goods that might come with that. He's tacitly acknowledging that he had the wrong picture of what the good life was. And that's something that I can definitely relate to. I mentioned that I've been with y'all for a year, and a year provides an opportunity for reflection. And one thing that I've realized is how, how much I've internalized what success in a pastoral role looks like based upon what I see on social media. The, I discerned a call to, to ministry the year after college, and that was like well after social media was a thing. And so I realized how much I think the good life of being a pastor is like the good life that I see in terms of the good pastors online who have a platform, who say clever things that people like. And I found myself realizing this past year, man, I have a twisted sense of what the good life in Jesus is like. I need a correction too. 
So how does our picture of the good life align with the picture that Jesus paints? And I think it's important for us to be honest about this. These are the kinds of things that we perhaps don't like to talk about. These aren't the Sunday school answers. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus dined with tax collectors and sinners. And if we pretend like we're different than that, then we're fooling ourselves only. We're certainly not fooling God, and oftentimes we're not fooling the people that we're with as well. Um, And so I think it's important to be honest with trusted friends about these, and especially with God, about these desires of our heart that we have. Uh, And the scary thing here is if we don't have this reflection, if we don't heed the words of Jesus, It's easy for us to organize our whole life trying to head down the right road, following our GPS, and not seeing the signs on the road that says trouble ahead. Trouble's coming if you're headed this way. And so that's why Jesus is trying to paint us this picture of what the good life is like. And I think that there's hope here And so I think we can get a better sense of that hope if we ask ourselves, how in the world can these people be the ones who are happy? How can these people be in this column be the ones who are happy, the ones who are blessed, and these ones be the ones who potentially are headed for trouble? And Jesus gives us some hints in the structure of how he words this. And once again, I'm not going to go into each one, though I'm sure someone more wise than I could. I just want us to look at the big picture here. So we'll notice that with each blessing or woe, there's a for statement that Jesus gives to explain why that person is happy or potentially in trouble. And not only that, we'll notice that if we look at the structure, that there are lots of opposites here. That this column seems to be the opposite of that column. We have poor and rich, we have hungry and satisfied, we have weeping and laughing, etc., etc. But not only are the opposites across the columns, there are opposites within each one, where the for statement that Jesus talks about brings about a reversal. The happy are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. There's a reversal there. And not only that, but if we look at the pattern of these four statements, we'll notice that for both columns, the first one and the last one talk about present reality and the middle two describe a future promise. So the, the, the first one just says the fact of yours is the kingdom of God and the last one says the fact that your reward is great. Um, ju- just like in the woes, the first one says you already have your consolation And the last one says, uh, you are just like the false prophets. So statements of fact, and then statements of a future promise, where he says, um, you shall be satisfied, or you shall laugh. And I think that gives us a hint about how these people could be the people that are, in fact, happy. It's because God sees them in their state, these people, as, as we trust in God, in our poverty, in our hunger, in our, in our tears, 
We trust in God knowing that he will see us and we will not stay that way forever. That the tables will be turned and God will set everything right. And that's super encouraged to know that in the end, everything is going to be okay as we trust in God. But Jesus doesn't say happy will be those who are poor. He says happy are those who are poor. So it can't just be a matter of, in the end, things will be okay. There has to be a matter to the here and now as well. And I think we get a hint of that when Jesus says, blessed or happy are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, of course, is something that Jesus talks about a lot. It's his main message. I think an easy way of thinking about it is, Uh, where uh, things happen as God wants them to happen. The kingdom of God is coming when everything in it is being set right. So Jesus is saying that those who are in the happy state, they have the kingdom of God. They have a foretaste, a sneak preview in their own life right now what it means for everything to be set right. That's how it's possible for us to have the happiness here and now is that we get an experience right now of the restoration that we all long for. And, and that's why we have uh, these states here in, in the big sense. It's not because Jesus is trying to like, idealize what it means to be poor or villainize all the rich. There were rich people who followed Jesus. You can think of Zacchaeus who sold, um, who gave away a quarter of his wealth and restored those who defrauded him. You can think of Mary of Bethany who supported Jesus in his ministry. So when Jesus is talking about who is happy and who's in trouble, it's not just a question of our estate, but how our state leads us to the experience here and now of the fullness of life with God and how it orients our hearts to that time when everything will be made right. And so when we see this picture that Jesus is painting, I don't think Jesus is trying to test us to say, oh, how does your picture of the good life compare to mine? And I'm going to grade you accordingly. I think what Jesus is trying to do is I think he's trying to invite us into the fullness of life that he has for us. And we need that invitation because the reality is most of us wouldn't buy in without his help. It's easy for us to think that we can have it good without God, that we don't need God to be happy. If we think about the good life, what comes, to life, what comes to mind for most of us is having a big bank account or having a good reputation or looking the right way or being with the right people. But Jesus says that happiness is found in knowing him. Jesus says he came to give us the fullness of life. He came to give us abundant life and that's what he wants us to have here. And so even though most of us would think, God, I don't need you for that, Jesus wants us to know him and be with him so much that Jesus embodied 
all these things that he talked about. And, and so uh, he wants us to have the good life so much that though he was rich, he became poor for our sake. And though he was the bread of life, he became hungry. And though he had perfect joy with his Father in heaven, he dwelled among us and wept with us and wept at the sight of people not accepting his invitation. And in the process, people laughed at him who thought that Jesus was losing. When he went to uh, Jairus to resurrect his daughter and said, she's not dead, people laughed at him. When he was on his way to the cross, the soldiers mocked him. And he went through all that suffering, the hatred of men, so that we could know the happiness and fullness of life with him. So that we who wouldn't choose it by our own choice could not only see what it looks like in Christ, but have that way opened up to us. And here's a little bit of the beauty of the good life that Jesus has to offer. When my friends and I were in college, we joked that surely we could not have arrived in life when we pulled up to Whataburger because we were students in college, didn't have much money, who hadn't made it in life. But if we believe what Jesus says, that happiness is finding our happiness and good life in him, then it, you don't need all of those things to have the good life. That no matter what your circumstance is, we can be content in Christ. That's why Paul says, in all these things, I'm able to find contentment. And so no matter where we are, no matter how twisted our picture of what the good life is, Jesus not only offers it to us, but makes it possible. Please pray with me. God, I thank you um, that you have showed us the way, that you desire abundant life for us. God, our hearts are deceitful, and you have showed us what the good life is, but we in different ways, Lord, want different things. And so please uh, illumine our hearts by your Holy Spirit to show us the ways in which we want good things apart from you. God, please uh, reimagine our notions of what the good life is, Lord, that we might be content in you and that we might taste the goodness of the life in the kingdom that you have to offer, Lord, and that with that redefined life, that redefined measure of what is good, God, we might know it with you in all circumstances. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.